I want you to think about the first three to five words that come to your mind when I say discipleship. So what are the first couple words that come to mind when I say discipleship? Christian discipleship. Go ahead and just write those down, or if not, think about it, or pull out your phone and your little note thing and put it in there. What comes to mind when I say discipleship? So you've got some thoughts down, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Okay, if, you, if, you, if you're even thinking of something now, go ahead and write it down. But now I need you to grab your Bible and stand up and open up to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. This is page 604 in your paper pew Bibles. So page 604 in your paper pew Bibles, Luke chapter 17. We're going to read together verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me. <clears throat> and he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. For your word. We thank you that your disciples wrote these words and your spirit brings them to life, inspires them, and does work that no man or woman or child could ever do. Your word is an unfair weapon in many ways against our flesh, for it gets into the crevices. It gets into our thoughts that nobody else thinks or knows we think. Thank you for your word. Oh, how we need it every day. For your word reveals you to us and brings about the gift of conviction and encouragement and worship. Be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning. And may we have hands and hearts to do all that you are calling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So what did you write down? What words came to mind? Any, anyone write down faith? Go ahead and raise a hand. Anybody write down faith? Bingo, saw that hand, there we go. Okay, at least one person wrote down faith. Uh, that's a little discouraging. No, I'm sure more of you did. <laughs> I'm sure, I, I, I hope more of you did. Um, how about um, servants or, or servanthood? Anybody write down servanthood? Okay, yep, yeah, bingo, all right, good. Anyone write down watch out against sin? Yeah, I wouldn't have either, <laughs> but Jesus does. Today's sermon title is 
simply called Discipleship 101. Now, I don't pretend to, to, to convince you that everything in discipleship is included here, but it seems to me Jesus is giving us a basic, well, a basic discipleship class. Or shall I say giving his disciples that, and we get to watch in and listen and thus learn. Our, our passage breaks down on three points. You'll notice that on the front of your handout there. Uh, watch yourselves, verses one through four. Exercise faith, verses five through six. And serve humbly, verses seven through 10. Watch yourselves, exercise faith, and serve humbly. Remember the context, and we've been talking about this each week, but it bears repeating. Jesus is on the way to the cross. Chapter 9 at the end is a big shift in Jesus' ministry. He sets his face to the cross. Jesus is moving towards his death and resurrection. His death on Good Friday, his resurrection on what we call Easter. And he's been speaking to several audiences as he journeys with a large group, no doubt, to the cross, to Jerusalem. We've noticed over the past couple of weeks, he's had some very difficult words to the Pharisees and the scribes, that is, the religious leaders, the, the, the lay pastors, the elders of the day. Today, though, notice his audience. It's very clear. And he said to his disciples, so there's still a group probably around Jesus that is larger than his disciples, but they're in, the, they're in the foreground. And you can even imagine with me that he lowers his voice and he looks at them, catches their eyes as he's saying these next words. Now the, the Pharisees who are following there, are trying to catch him in air are probably still there. The, the crowds are still there, but Jesus lowers his voice and sets his eyes on his disciples. He wants them to hear that. He, Christian, he wants you to hear what he's saying today. And he begins, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll notice a little number above the phrase temptations to sin. It's a phrase that translates a single word. In the New American Standard, you'll notice it, it says something like stumbling blocks. <clears throat> stumbling blocks are sure to come. That, that's the idea of this Semitic word. The, the idea that you would trip. You've all experienced this. You're, you're walking on ground. You thought it was even or you didn't know that Lego that your child nefariously put there, right? Or, or the, the, the stone, whatever it is, you stumble. You, you're caught unawares, perhaps, and you stumble, you falter. That, that's the idea in a general sense of this word. But I have no problem with what the ESV does here because Jesus isn't just talking about the times we, we lose our footing. He's talking about sin. He's talking about not just the physical act of stumbling, but the spiritual meaning of what it means to stumble. And in my devotions just this morning, Psalm 105 came to mind. And Psalm 105, verse 37, which will not be up on your screen, but just rejoices that the second generation in the desert made it out. They didn't stumble. You remember the first generation that followed Moses through the Red Sea? They complained. They stumbled on sin and God punished them with death. They wandered 40 years in the desert to die and never see 
or walk in the promised land. But the psalmist is rejoicing that they, the second generation, the kids of those parents, didn't stumble. They didn't sin. They didn't blaspheme or apostatize from the Lord. So here, Jesus doesn't have just, not that it's really the case, but minor sins in, the, in mind here, but serious sins that would cause someone to walk away from discipling with Jesus. And that is why he has such a extremely harsh warning. It's striking. Woe to the one through whom stumbling blocks come. So woe to you or me if we cause someone else, the little ones, to stumble. Now, in, other, in the other gospel account, it's clear that Jesus is talking to children because they're right there in the context. They're not here in the context. It's no surprise to me that Jesus would talk about warning us to cause others to stumble more than once. So the context here is little ones in the faith. That is, little ones who are following Jesus. Younger disciples, if you will. Woe to any of us if we were to cause them to stop following Jesus. It would be better, verse 2, for that person, if a millstone, an incredibly heavy mill, a stone that would frankly break your neck, but if it was tied to your neck and you were... You were tossed into Lake Superior, drowning, you know, 20 seconds down and rotting on the bottom of Lake Superior. Better that that were to be your case than were you to face God in judgment for causing a little one, a younger man or woman or child, to abandon the faith of Christ, to walk away. Now, I'm not going to delve into can you lose your faith or not. I don't think Jesus is saying that here. I do believe that God preserves his saints. But the threat needs to have that sting. And again, at, the, at verse 2, the NASB would translate uh, he, that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Same word, just the verb as opposed to a plural noun. So Jesus begins his watch yourself section here with a warning on, may none of us cause someone else to stumble with their faith. And we have to ask, well, what would that look like in today's era? And that would be obviously false teaching, of course. Teaching that seems biblical, but it is not. Or lives that seem biblical, but they are not. One of my greatest fears is to have a moral failure as a pastor, just as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, but especially as a pastor. And not that men cannot be restored to ministry, but I think of, you know, Billy Graham's, he had a very similar fear as well. Why? Because I know the damage it can do to other people. And I hear the warning here and I take it very, very, very seriously. Verse three, pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says, exclamation point. It's a command. It's an imperative. And there's strength behind this. So if his voice was lower in that first part, it raised up. And if he wasn't looking at you, you're looking at Jesus. Pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Plural, by the way. Plural. We'll come back to that. As he now shifts from warning us against causing someone else to stumble, to sin, to leave the faith, he now shifts to, well, what does he shift to? He shifts to accountability, doesn't he? If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
And if he sins against you seven times in the day, in that same day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Boy, things didn't get easier, they got harder. You've experienced someone who hurts you deeply with sin. How hard is it to forgive? And I'm assuming I'm talking to mostly Christians here. Imagine being outside of Christ, having never tasted his forgiveness and trying to forgive somebody who's hurt you deeply. Well, for some, it's, it's probably the reason why we have so many d- divorces in our families and in our country, an inability to forgive. It's a broad statement, but I'm sure there's a lot of truth and some counselors in here would probably nod their heads, yeah. So if your brother or sister, of course, sins against you or sins in general, rebuke him or her. Now, watch yourselves bleeds into not only your your own life, it doesn't mean that we're a watch guard over our brother or sister or wife next to us, like we're always looking for them to screw up. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But when you notice sin, brothers or sisters, the most loving, the most Christ-like thing to do is to rebuke them. Case in point, at our last elder meeting, I made a statement that was out of turn. I was being callous towards somebody and I said something that was just not appropriate or Christian. And one of the brothers, one of my fellow elders after the meeting called me to account and said, hey, Kevin, I feel like those words were just not appropriate. And so in my report letter to the elders this Tuesday, they will see my formal apology for that. And was I offended? I may be, maybe a little tempted, but not really, I was thankful. Because I know this brother, I know he loves me. And I know he cares enough, cares enough to do the hardest thing in the world. And that is to confront somebody lovingly with the truth. Now there's no spiritual gift of rebuke, okay? So some are smiling and some of you know people who think they have it, okay? So that's not what, of course, we're unpacking. And you look at Paul's list of spiritual gifts, it ain't on there, people. Okay, thankfully. But let's be honest, we don't struggle with that. We struggle with the opposite, don't we? I mean, we're Minnesota nice. We just pretend we didn't hear it. Well, maybe he or she didn't mean it. Because it's, it's hard. We're, we worry, or at least I worry. I'm sure you, you would probably do too. Emotional, relational fallout. Uh, what if they, they, they rebuff you? Well, how dare you? And the, what if relationship's broken? I mean, you, you, lots of worries, lots of worries. But of course, fear is never faith, is it? In that sense, at least. So Jesus has a hard word for his disciples, and that's us too. If you really love your brothers and sisters and you see them in sin, rebuke them. With truth and in love. Two, Jesus continues on. What does he say? Um, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, if she repents, forgive her. Forgive him. Now, we could unpack the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation in a whole sermon. We won't do that. But just simply remember, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is what you offer, the grace you offer to somebody else when they sin against you. It does not guarantee that they will say, I'm sorry, or that they will want to make things right with you. It's not conditional, in other words. 
Reconciliation is when two people come together and they own their sin and they forgive each other and they're brought back together. Forgiveness doesn't get to say, you got to move more my direction for me to forgive you. Nope. Forgiveness doesn't have conditions like that. Because God didn't have conditions when while we were yet sinners, he died for us. It's grace, friends. Forgiveness is grace. Unearned. Unmerited. It's given. Whatever happens afterwards, it's given. Uh, one, one per, I don't remember who, who said it. I didn't write it down in, in ver- verbatim. But the lack of forgiveness, or, or in other words, bitterness, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right? That's what the opposite looks like in our lives. I've been there. I'm sure many of us have been there. So will you hear Jesus' words today and think about, Lord, who have I not forgiven? It's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not conditional on what they're doing right now, whether they're getting better or worse, whether they've apologized or not. Forgiveness starts at the cross and it moves from there. Rebuke. And if he repents, forgive. And notice then the condition. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, which is shorthand for over and over and over and over again, we still, notice the words, must forgive. Now let's be honest. You've been on the other side of this. You've, you've screwed up. Husbands, you've been harsh to your wife. You've, your temper's flared. You've said words. And you say to your wife who's crying, I'm sorry. I'll try to do better. You're, you're sorry for what you've done, but you also know you're probably not changing overnight. There's no instant sanctification. It takes work. It takes time. And so, wives, you learn to forgive over and over. And husbands, you learn to repent constantly. And pick the scenario. Switch the roles. Friends, high school friends, forgiveness, extending it over and over is something absolutely countercultural, isn't it? We live in a cancel culture, don't we? You said something wrong or something I could take out of context, boom, I cancel you, you're done. You're dead to me. No wonder so many of us are so lonely and so mentally unstable. We either walk on eggshells or we just isolate our little perfect selves instead of forgiving and working on relationships. And we could go on here, but you get the idea. If we're going to watch ourselves, one, we're making sure that we're not leading others astray. We're true to God's word. We're we're reading books that are true to God's word. We're not getting into heretical thought stuff that doesn't seem biblical. We don't play around. That's fire. That that, that That is danger. Two, we're, we're helping each other walk. We love each other enough to say, hey, what you said or what you did wasn't right. And we're receiving repentance and we're saying, I forgive you. And that means also, friends, we're quick to repent when we do sin. May we be known for our quickness to repent. A a few weeks ago, I was writing in my journal that I I felt, Lord, we, we needed as a church and as a culture to understand sin because I think it's really lost on our culture. And I meant to to lead with this, so I'll I'll conclude this section with this. 
How you define sin really says a lot about your understanding of the scripture. Today, you might argue, most people who are outside of the church would define sin like something along the lines of being untrue to your deepest desires. I think that's probably a fair, it's a roughshod, but a fair definition of sin outside of the Christian faith in our culture today. Being untrue to your deepest desires, your deepest feelings. The Greeks, the, the, the actual original Greek word that's often used here just meant literally missing the mark. You're lining up, you're, you're shot on, on Bambi and you missed. So there's a sense in which you tried, but you failed. <clears throat> but in the scriptures, and here I'm going to borrow from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. In the scriptures, sin is this. Sin is the human condition, theologically speaking, of separation from God that arises from opposition to God's purposes. It may be that we break God's law, we fail to do what God wills, or we're just in plain rebellion. And sin needs forgiveness by God. Sin is serious. Sin leads to hell, as we saw last week with the rich man. Sin leads to an eternal torment in hell that is just because God is holy and we are not. Christians, friends, we need to treat it seriously. Cancer will only kill you in this life. Sin will kill you forever. And that, of course, is why Jesus took our sin to the cross, isn't it? And there's the good news of the gospel. Moving on. Exercising faith, verses five through six. So Jesus has laid out some heavy words to his disciples. And it's no surprise that the leaders of the disciples, the apostles, the 12 say to the Lord, increase our faith. They realize the weight of Jesus' command here, the accountability in their community that this is what requires. And Jesus says, verse six, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Now notice first, the disciples have faith. They're asking for more. So they have faith. They're not being rebuked for not having faith. They're not even actually being rebuked here. They're being corrected and encouraged. But they have faith already. They're just saying, Jesus, increase our faith. This is, this is hard. <clears throat> and Jesus gives this little phrase, doesn't he? You know, if you have enough, if, if you had faith, he doesn't say if you had enough, if you had faith, present tense active, actually, you might translate this, if you are having faith, even as small as the grain, the little mustard seed, the smallest seed that the most person knew, most people knew in that era, you could say to this tree, get up out of the ground and it would be chucked in the sea, no problem. So, Jesus isn't talking necessarily, friends, about our amount of faith, but the object of our faith, that we have it and that we have it in God, and particularly in Jesus. It's not about volume. It's about whom we have our faith in. Faith, one author writes, faith's presence is more crucial than its quantity. Jesus is essentially saying that God can do a lot with a little trust. God can do a lot with a little trust, a little faith. Another author says it this way. As leaders, especially, we, we face challenges greater than our faith. We, we hope for great faith, certainly greater faith than, than our followers. But looking back, Jesus doesn't require superior spiritual elements or endowments from his disciples who were walking with him. 
Rather, he promises to be present in the smallness of their faith. The the image of the mustard seed here is another hyperbole, but the point is clear. Christians, even apostles, the mighty 12, are distinguished not by the quantity of their faith, but by the employment of their faith. Not by greatness or smallness of faith, but by acting on faith, even faith, as small as a little mustard seed. And that faith, because of the object, Jesus, God himself, can uproot Trees can throw mountains into the ocean. Not because of us, friends. It's not about us turning inward, encouraging or or rebuking ourselves to have more faith. It's about looking at the object of our faith and believing that he can accomplish his will through us. Now, there's more to be said here in in the Bible. And again, as I often say, we could unpack it further. But remember, part of our faith, of course, is being rooted in what God wants, not what we want. He's not Santa, after all. He's a sovereign savior. Finally, Jesus, after encouraging us to watch ourselves and to exercise our faith, no matter how small, lastly, encourages, actually teaches, I should say, us to serve humbly. Verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant, you can also translate this bond servant or slave, Plowing or keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. So imagine, you're a master, you have a property, you have an estate, and you're coming in and your servant or your servants, the first one you see comes in and you say, hey, come and join me at the table. No, you wouldn't say that. That's not their job. What, what, what is their job? What is their role? Well, verse 8, you would say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and then afterwards you will eat and drink. If, if you're a, a, a fan of Downton Abbey, you, you see this with the serving staff. They serve the Lord and lady and the family, and then afterwards, they, they go and they have their supper in the, in the kitchen or in the area where the servants gather. That's what servants do. They serve, and then they take care of themselves, so to speak. So verse 9, does he, that is the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the answer is No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Notice Jesus flips there. At first we were the master, thinking about how servants are meant to act, and now we're reminded that, well, Jesus is the master and we're the servants. And so when we have done all that he has commanded, we won't say, I'm awesome, I did such a great job. No, we'll say, I just did what you called me to do, Lord. I'm an unworthy servant. And here, unworthy means unworthy of praise, more particularly. Because, of course, Jesus is the only one worthy of praise. Amen? Humble service. One author put it this way. Jesus meant... That as we're watching ourselves and rebuking and forgiving and believing that this is nothing extraordinary. In fact, this is the way we're just supposed to live. And when we do it, we are at best unworthy servants. Such a life is our duty. This life as Christians, though extraordinary as it may be, is ordinary Christianity. Oh, what we could be. Oh, that we could be extraordinarily ordinary. 
In a day of YouTube videos and and social media where we're always extolling ourselves and making much of ourselves in looks or in acts, friends, Jesus' call is just to be ordinary in watching out for sin and helping our sisters and brothers who are in it, in exercising faith in him, walking in it, not in fear, and in serving. There's nothing, at, there's nothing remarkable about that. And that's good, because that's just discipleship 101. Well, how do we, Pastor, how, how do we connect? How do we follow the, the first exhortation that Jesus gives us to watch ourselves? Well, I'll tell you how not to do it. How not to is to not come to church and to not connect with anybody, to be isolated on your own. If you don't want to ever be rebuked for sin, don't meet with other Christians. If you don't want accountability, then stay solo. But then I would say, are you, are you really a Christian? Because everything in the scriptures is about community, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So positively speaking, if you desire, you know you want to grow, then connection is the key. Small groups, Sunday school, Sunday service, women's groups, men's groups, triads, junior high ministry, senior high ministry. Connect with other Christians. Rub off on each other. Offend each other and forgive each other. Repent to each other. Live life together. Families, revive devotions at the table and prayer together. If you can't do it every day, get it in once a week. Find ways to walk together, to rub edges, to be with each other. How do we, how do we, how do we grow in our faith? Well, we exercise it through reading God's word, for letting God's word shape our view of God. Because if he's the object of our faith, then that either increases our confidence and reduces our fear, or if we don't read his word, then watch how fear takes over. We could use a revival of mentorship in our church, frankly, of older men and women coming alongside younger men and women. It doesn't take anything profound, just simple, discipleship, obedience in the same direction, reading God's word with a younger man or woman and praying. And last but not least, let's be ordinary, normal, self-forgetful, serving Christians. That is how we'll achieve our beyond the horizon vision. If you remember, it was a year or two ago, we, the elders put forth with the help of other leaders a, a vision for our church. And that vision was to introduce every man, woman, and child in our town and our county with the gospel. It's not an extraordinary work of, of, of Christian service. It's an ordinary work of Christian service and faith. If we will just be ordinary Christians, faithful, thinking less of ourselves and more of him, quick to forgive, quick to repent, and willing to share our faith with other men and women and children, that vision can be accomplished. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it challenges us. <clears throat> it challenges us anew every time we read it. For many of us, we've read this chapter dozens of times, and yet your word speaks truly and in greater depth the longer we walk with you by faith. Oh, help us to be extraordinarily ordinary Christians. Help us this week, this day, 
to be quick to repent and to forgive, to be willing to take a rebuke. Help us to have faith in you, Jesus, and not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our strengths. And be gracious to us when we are weak so that we can see how strong you can be through us when we walk by faith and not by sight. And last but not least, encourage us to be humble servants, thinking much of you and less of ourselves, loving others more than ourselves, and you most of all, Jesus. May you receive all the glory for the fruit that you will bear through this church and this community. We pray it in your name. Amen.